I'm Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode, We the People host Jeffrey Rosen will be answering your constitutional questions that you, our listeners, have been asking. We've been collecting your questions over the past few months from social media, our weekly newsletter, Constitution Weekly, and email. Jeff, thank you so much for joining and for answering these great questions. Thank you, Lana. It is so wonderful to be here. And I need to thank you for having uh, prepared the phenomenal memo that will be guiding me as I answer these questions. Uh, Lana, uh, dear We the People listeners, is the head of our constitutional prep team. She is Uh, Director of Constitutional Content and in-house counsel at the National Constitution Center, and her superb, detailed, and accurate memos allow me to sound like I know what I'm talking about uh, almost every day here at the National Constitution Center. So thank you, Lana. Happy to do it, Jeff. (laughs) Great. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, the first question is a question that has been in the news lately, and this listener question asks, can the president pardon himself? So... The answer is, as usual, it's debatable. The text of the Constitution doesn't strictly answer the question of whether the president can pardon himself if he's committed an offense against the United States. Some say he can and some say he can't. So let's try to sum up the arguments on both sides as best we can. The power to pardon comes from Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1 of the Constitution. Dear We the People listeners, get out your interactive constitutions and read the superb explainers on the pardon power written by our scholars, including Brian Colt. And uh, Brian, in his great explainer and also in his piece, Pardon Me, the Constitutional Case Against Presidential Self-Pardon, says the evidence for the unconstitutionality of presidential self-pardons is stronger than the arguments for its legality. And Colt looks at the original understanding and English history, and he says the framers didn't intend to allow self-pardons. He says this wasn't an issue in England because there wasn't criminal action against the executive. But in America, the framers didn't see the pardon power as putting the president above the law, according to Colt. And he notes that at the convention, Edmund Randolph argued that pardons for treason should be excluded from the president's authority. Allowing the president to pardon treason was too great a trust because the president himself may be guilty. James Wilson said pardons for treason could be very important and the president himself had the power. Uh, noting that if the president is is guilty, he can be impeached. And Wilson's view carried the day. And so uh, Colt takes from this uh, the notion that uh, Wilson argued that unlike the king, the president wasn't above the law and as such the pardon power couldn't protect him as if he were like King Charles II. So Colt does admit that the self-pardon question wasn't explicitly mentioned in the debates. So It's conceivable that the framers just didn't consider the possibility of self-pardons, but he does go on to say that uh, the framers didn't view the president, the pardon powers, placing the president above the law, and then he makes textual and structural arguments uh, attacking uh, the idea that the president could pardon himself. Um, He also notes that Richard Nixon repeatedly asked for an internal legal opinion about self-pardon at the end of his presidency. The president's lawyers did say that Nixon could issue a self-pardon, but Nixon declined to do so. But just before Nixon resigned, the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel issued a memo on the subject, 
on August 5th, 1974, which listeners can check out. And Mary Lawton, the acting assistant attorney general, said, under the fundamental law that no one may be judge in his own case, the president cannot pardon himself. So that's a pretty strong OLC opinion from the Nixon administration. But there's an argument on the other side. Notable lawyers and scholars like Judge Richard Posner argued that the president can pardon himself. Posner wrote that 1999 book about the Clinton impeachment, uh, a matter of state, I think it was called. It was a, quite a vigorous uh, polemic, and it argued that the question was left open by the founders. Posner said it generally has been inferred from the breadth of the constitutional language that the president can indeed pardon himself. And Samuel Morrison, a pardon attorney who specialized in the subject of the Justice Department, told the Washington Post last May that you could theoretically have a self-pardon, but he would be subject for impeachment for doing so. And Andrew McCarthy in the National Review agrees that the president can pardon himself, but if he abuses the power the remedy is impeachment. What has the Supreme Court said? Well, there are a couple of relevant cases. There's ex parte Garland from 1866 involving a former Confederate senator where the Supreme Court said that the power to pardon is unlimited. It extends to every offense known to the law, although it didn't address the question of self-pardons. And then there's an opinion called ex parte Grossman by our hero, Lana, yours and mine, uh, Chief Justice William Howard Taft, who wrote that the pardon power extended to criminal contempt orders issued by federal judges and that these could constitute offenses against the United States. Taft looked at records from the Constitutional Convention, which said that the framers' understanding of the power matched the scope of the king's pardon at common law with the same limitation except in cases of impeachment. So Taft concluded if the president did abuse the pardon power, the more appropriate remedy would be impeachment rather than to resort to a narrow and strained construction of the general power of the president. Great. Well, we have a related question from a listener that asks, can a sitting president be indicted? Once again, the answer is it's an open question about whether the president can be charged with a criminal offense while in office. Let's look at the arguments on both sides. The text is not definitive. The Constitution's framers seem to think that a sitting president could not be indicted, and the best evidence for that is the Federalist Papers, but no one's tried criminally to prosecute a sitting president, so this hasn't been tested in practice. Uh, most experts, though, seem to say no. So let's begin with the text. Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office if convicted in an impeachment trial of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And then Article 1, Section 3 says judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy office, any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. So we know from the text of the impeachment clause that you can be indicted after impeachment. But then there's this incredibly uh, relevant passage from Federalist 69 by Hamilton. The essay is about the real character of the executive. And this is Hamilton in Federalist 69. We the People listeners, a uh, friend sent me this text recently uh, and I was struck by it. I'm sure you will be too. The president of the United States would be liable to be impeached, tried, and upon conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes of misdemeanors removed from office, semicolon, and would afterward 
be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law and would afterward be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. So that seems to suggest that Hamilton at least thought that the constitutional process for criminal prosecution of a president is impeachment first and indictment later. And then Hamilton continues, the person of the king of Great Britain is sacred and inviolable. There's no constitutional tribunal to which he is amenable. Uh, in this delicate and important circumstance of personal responsibility, the president of confederated America would stand on no better ground than a governor of New York and on worse ground than the governors of Maryland and Delaware. In other words, he's also emphasizing that the U.S. president is not above the law and once impeached can be criminally indicted. Um, here, here are some uh, arguments by scholars that you can only be indicted after impeachment. We have David Sklansky from Stanford. Uh, who told the BBC that the Department of Justice has concluded in the past that bringing a criminal case against a sitting president would be constitutionally infeasible. And we have a 1973 memo from the Department of uh, Justice's Office of Legal Counsel. This is, again, in the waning days of the Nixon administration. And in fact, I think it was the same assistant attorney general who said that the president can't pardon himself, said that a sitting president must face impeachment before facing charges in a criminal court. The memo said, quote, a criminal trial empowering a jury of 12 individuals to, in effect, overturn a national mandate as expressed through the election of a president through a guilty verdict is unacceptable. And in 1973, the Justice Department insisted that any indictment would be an unconstitutional burden since the president is the symbolic head of the nation to wound him by a criminal proceeding is to hamstring the operation of the whole government apparatus, both in foreign and domestic affairs. And then in 2000, the, ju the Justice Department concluded during the Clinton administration that neither the text nor history of the Constitution is dispositive on the question, but rendered an internal opinion against indictment of a sitting president as a matter of considerations of constitutional structure. Akhil Amar agrees uh, in a constitutional puzzle, can the president be indicted? He said in the New York Times, the framers implicitly immunized a sitting president from ordinary criminal prosecution. Uh, and Amar says, although the text doesn't answer the question, it has to be a structural inference about the uniqueness of the president himself. So we, the people listeners, the structural inference is basically uh, he, he couldn't function in foreign and domestic affairs if a single prosecutor or a single federal judge could haul him from pillar to post as Thomas Jefferson uh, talked about in denouncing the judiciary and uh, therefore the prosecution should wait until after impeachment. And that kind of structural inference is supported by the Supreme Court's ruling in Clinton v. Jones, which in evaluating whether a civil case against the president could go forward, focused on whether it would take too much of the president's time. And the court in that case said a civil case wouldn't take too much of the president's time, uh, seeming to suggest that a criminal case might. But there are arguments obviously on the other side. The most prominent dissenter is Eric Friedman, who wrote in a 1999 Law Review article uh, that the issue of indictment by uh, of the president divided the founders and said granting sitting presidents immunity from prosecution is inconsistent with history, structure, and underlying philosophy of government at odds with precedent and unjustified by practical considerations. He noted that other federal officials who are subject to impeachment like judges have been indicted while in office. Courts have rejected the argument that impeachment is the sole remedy for judges. Amar says presidents are different. If you're going to undo a national election, the body that does so should have a national mandate. Uh, but uh, the Watergate prosecutors uh, debated the issue as well. 
Leon Jaworski, the Watergate special prosecutor, said it's an open and substantial question whether an incumbent president is subject to indictment. Uh, but he, but the Watergate grand jury did name Richard Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator because they didn't know if they could indict the sitting president. And we have these Office of Legal Counsel memos which repeatedly say indicting a sitting president would violate the Constitution by undermining the president's ability to do his job. Uh, but these are all structural inferences. Um, there are Justice Department regulations that require Robert Mueller, the special counsel, to follow the department's rules, regulations, procedures, and practices. So if these memos bind Mueller, it would seem that he wouldn't indict uh, the president no matter what he uncovered. Uh, but uh, there are arguments uh, – there, there, there's a twist to that uh, as well, which is that uh, uh, other um, independent counsels have reached the opposite conclusion. Uh, Kenneth Starr, who served as independent counsel under the now defunct statute, concluded that the president could be indicted. And as Ronald Rotunda, who was the law professor who wrote the memo to Kenneth Starr that said a federal grand jury could indict a sitting president, argues in a Washington Post op-ed, uh, it's not a technical distinction about the difference between Mueller and Starr's jurisdiction because as Rotunda discussed in his memo, distinguishing between the independent counsel statute and the regulations such as those indicting Mueller's office, uh, there are Supreme Court cases going back 150 years that emphasize the president has complete authority to control federal criminal prosecutions. This means that in practice, because everyone agrees that the president can fire the special prosecutor if he likes, uh, although Clinton couldn't have fired the independent counsel, um, Trump could fire anyone who tried to indict him and uh, that may uh, settle the question in practice if not in theory. Great. Well, um, now we come to our third in a trio of constitutional questions that touch on various aspects of the Mueller investigation. And this listener asks, what does constitutional history reveal about presidents being subpoenaed and the legality of them refusing to appear and or pleading rights under the Fifth Amendment? Well, there is a history on this question and it's fascinating, of course. Uh, presidents have testified in legal investigations before. In 1876, President Grant voluntarily testified at the White House in a criminal case involving the whiskey ring as a witness for the defense of his own personal secretary. President Jimmy Carter gave sworn testimony in three situations. Other presidents have, have also given testimony. The leading case is probably U.S. v. Nixon, 1974, the unanimous Supreme Court decision which said that President Nixon had to answer a special prosecutor's subpoena to hand over the Watergate tapes. Nixon's lawyers argued executive privilege and the need for confidentiality, and they said the case couldn't be heard by the court because it was a intra-executive conflict between Nixon and the special prosecutor. Uh, but the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed, and it held that uh, neither the special separation of powers doctrine nor the need for confidentiality of executive communications could create an unqualified privilege. The president's generalized assertion of privilege must yield to the dem demonstrated specific need for evidence in a pending criminal trial and the fundamental demands of due process of law in the fair administration of criminal justice. So Nixon was ordered to obey the subpoena and produce the tapes. He chose to do so and resigned soon after. So that seems pretty open and shut, doesn't it? Well, there are always distinctions that can be made. The subpoena in Nixon was for tapes, not for the president's personal testimony. 
During the Clinton investigation, Bill Clinton was subpoenaed for personal testimony. His legal team debated whether they had to abide by the subpoena. The Clinton and Jones case said Clinton couldn't use an executive privilege defense to avoid testimony in a civil lawsuit, although Justice Stevens, in his Clinton and Jones unanimous opinion, said the decision didn't address the question of, quote, whether a court may compel the president's attendance at any specific time or place. Uh, Later, President Clinton uh, responded to the subpoena and agreed voluntarily to testify via video session with the independent counsel. Uh, When it came to physical evidence, at first uh, Clinton avoided it, but once the Lewinsky evidence emerged, he agreed to testify after reaching a compromise with Ken Starr. So if President Trump refused uh, an in-person interview, Mueller could try to strike a similar compromise and allow videotaped or written testimony or even offer Trump immunity, which means his testimony couldn't be used against him. Uh, Of course, Trump could still be prosecuted for perjury if he gave false testimony. And if the uh, Mueller investigation led to a grand jury subpoena to Trump, then the legal team could argue that uh, they could cite a 1997 opinion by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit about an investigation into Mike Espy, who was Clinton's agriculture secretary. And that ruling said investigators would have to prove they were seeking information unavailable elsewhere to overcome a claim of executive privilege. This is called the SB standard. But that only applies to the president's actions in office. And the Nixon case, you know, again, says if there's not uh, a, a demonstrated uh, need for executive privilege, then it's a balancing act and, and the president can be subpoenaed. So for all these reasons, uh, several scholars have concluded that the law in this case probably favors Trump having to comply with a Mueller subpoena. Uh, There are two other relevant uh, scenarios in this case. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein would need to approve any grand jury subpoena, and his replacement, if he were fired or resigned, could decide not to approve the subpoena, or or Rosenstein could choose not to subpoena. Uh, But um, all this really brings us back to uh, the most relevant precedent of all, and that's uh, Thomas Jefferson in the U.S. v. Burr case. Uh, Jefferson took the position that each branch should determine its own interpretation of the Constitution and not be bound by the interpretations of the other branches. And in U.S. v. Burr, Jefferson argued that a court can issue a subpoena to the president. The president decides how it's enforced. And to drive home his point, Jefferson submitted the subpoenaed material in the Burr case with portions blotted out. And surprisingly, somehow, the presiding judge, Chief Justice John Marshall, who detested Jefferson and took few opportunities to avoid uh, 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 clashing with him, uh, Marshall didn't object to the blotting out. Um, So John Marshall's non-objection is not definitive precedent, but um, it it does uh, suggest that if the president can't defy a subpoena entirely, he may be uh, make up his own mind about precisely how to obey it, uh, although Nixon uh, says that he has to obey ultimately if ordered. What happens if the president ignores a subpoena? Uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe says that, uh, quote, even if courts lack power to enforce a subpoena against a president, presidential defiance of a lawful court order might, in sufficiently serious circumstance, constitute an impeachable offense. And therefore, about the only thing we can say is that uh, if President Trump were ultimately to attempt to defy 
an order from the U.S. Supreme Court or from another court to obey a subpoena, we'd have lots of litigation that would result. Um, And just quickly on the Fifth Amendment aspect of it. So let's say a subpoena were issued to President Trump and he pleads the Fifth. What would happen in that scenario? Well, there are a bunch of scenarios. Uh, The president and his legal team could agree that he would answer questions outside a courtroom or the the Trump legal team could ask the courts for guidance. Uh, But uh, President Trump, like any citizen, can always cite the Fifth Amendment during testimony. if the president were to refuse to answer questions by taking the fifth, it would surely have political consequences, but it's well within his legal rights. And remember, dear We the People listeners, um, you can take the fifth anytime you fear that your answers might be used against you in a criminal proceeding, um, even if that connection isn't obvious. Last year, the Congressional Research Service uh, noted in a discussion about Michael Flynn and a possible congressional subpoena, the Supreme Court has taken a broad view of what constitutes incriminating testimony, holding the privilege protects any statement that the witness reasonably believed could be used in a criminal prosecution or lead to other evidence that might be so used. Uh, That concept is related to a 1956 Supreme Court decision, the Slowchower versus Board of Higher Education case where Justice Tom Clark said a witness may have a reasonable fear of prosecution and yet be innocent of any wrongdoing. The privilege serves to protect innocents who might be ensnared by ambiguous consequences. Um, The roots of the Fifth Amendment come from the framers' concern about uh, being forced to testify under oath, and the framers were so concerned about the consequences of perjury, which they believed was eternal damnation, that they didn't want to put people in situations where they were hauled before a grand jury and required to testify under oath for fear of the cruel trilemma of perjury, which meant eternal damnation, uh, contempt, refusing to answer to protect your mental privacy, which uh, would mean um, being jailed for contempt, or uh, self-incrimination. And that's why there was a great suspicion of oaths, and the Fifth Amendment does protect a degree of mental privacy, even for the innocent. Uh, I tell my Crimpro students, if you're being asked questions by an investigator, even if you're innocent, if you think there's any uh, chance that the answers might be used against you, do plead the fifth. It's a great American right, and the president has it as much as anyone else. Great. Great tip. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I hope you never have to use it, and me too. (laughs) All right. Well, let's switch gears. Our next listener question asks, what is the automobile exception to the Fourth Amendment? Well, It's an exception that comes once again from that underappreciated constitutional hero, Chief Justice William Howard Taft. (laughs) This was not a setup. It was a question from a listener. And thank you, dear listener, for sending in the question. Um, Taft actually did not write a a whole lot of really memorable Supreme Court decisions. He he was arguably the second greatest chief since Marshall because of his administrative skills, because he created the modern federal judicial conference, gave the Supreme Court control over its own docket, and built the Supreme Court building and also fostered unanimity and consensus on the court. But he wasn't a a great doctrinal writer of opinions, but he did write a couple really important opinions. And one of them was called Carroll versus United States. And he said, uh, he recognized what he called an exigent circumstance exception to the warrant requirement. It's based on the idea that cars are really mobile. So since you can make getaways in them, you you shouldn't, the police shouldn't have to get a warrant. 
the case involved, uh, first of all, prohibition. All of the great 1920s era cases arise from the war on booze. And George Carroll is carrying a huge amount of illicit bootleg liquor in his car in violation of the Volstead Act during Prohibition. The police have probable cause to think that he's transporting liquor, but no warrant. So they stop his car. They conduct a search. They rip out the upholstery of the car. I always try to imagine these beautiful big 1920s cars with all the upholstery on the side ripped out. And they found all of the contraband booze. So Taft held for the court that the search was consistent with the Fourth Amendment. And he distinguished searches of cars from searches from homes because cars are mobile. The Volstead Act required a use of a warrant in searching homes, but Taft looked at the legislative history, which worried that it would be tough to get warrants to search cars. The report said it would take from the officers the power they absolutely must have to be of any service. For if they can't search for liquor without a warrant, they might as well be discharged. It's impossible to get a warrant to stop an automobile. Before a warrant could be secured, the automobile would be beyond the reach of the officer with its load of illegal liquor disposed of. Isn't it interesting, dear We the People listeners, that Taft looks to the legislative history of the Volstead Act in recognizing the uh, warrant uh, exception rather than making it up on his own? But he also looks to constitutional history and notes that... Uh, the first Congress recognized a difference between goods subject to forfeiture when concealed in a dwelling house or similar place and like goods in course of transportation and concealed in a movable vessel where they readily could be put out of reach of a search warrant. So in that sense, Taft said, a car is like a ship or a wagon in that it's movable where it's not practicable to secure a warrant because the vehicle can be quickly moved out of the locality, he wrote, uh, then you'd need a warrant. But there's a limit. Taft said, the police have to have probable cause. Those lawfully within the country entitled to use the public highways have a right to free passage without interruption or search unless there is known to a competent official authorized to search probable cause for believing that their vehicles are carrying contraband or illegal merchandise. And then applying the rule to the case at hand, Taft said the police did have probable cause but no warrant. So the Carroll boys, as they call them, who are the bootleggers, uh, were out of luck and the search is reasonable. Uh, recently, the court has decided two Fourth Amendment cases, we touched on them in a recent podcast, that implicate the automobile exception. The cases are Byrd versus U.S. and Collins versus Virginia. Collins held eight to one that the car exception doesn't justify an intrusion on the curtilage of the house. And I, I confessed in the Collins podcast that I always had trouble defining that in criminal pro classes, but it's basically the area right around the house. So you, we don't know how far out it extends, but if you have a if you're lucky enough to have a detached house, then probably the periphery or the driveway right around it is curtilage, but not much else. And if you live in a apartment, I don't know what the curtilage is, but in any event, the, uh, the, the you can't uh, walk on the curtilage or driveway of the house. Uh, without a warrant where residents expect privacy, mostly because the house is really sacrosanct. So Collins involved a motorcycle parked in the driveway. It's part of the curtilage. And the justification for the automobile exception doesn't cons consider a resident's privacy inherent in its home. It rests on the two ideas that cars are easy to move and can be heavily regulated on the ro road. Those exceptions don't apply for a parked car or motorcycle. And then Bird also involved the warrantless search of a car um, but there the petitioner didn't own it. Uh, he had basically borrowed it from someone else who rented it. 
Bird's fiance was the only authorized driver of the rental car. She let him drive the car. The car company said, you aren't on the contract. So the police said, we can search. And the Supreme Court disagreed. Um, the, the government said that, uh, you know, he didn't have a legitimate expectation of privacy in the rental car because he wasn't an authorized driver. But the Supreme Court held unanimously that under the Fourth Amendment, a driver of a rental car can challenge a search of the vehicle, even if he's not an authorized driver. The fact that the driver has control or possession of the car doesn't defeat uh, his otherwise reasonable expectation of privacy. Isn't it thrilling, we the people listeners, that these Fourth Amendment decisions are unanimous or nearly so? Byrd was unanimous. Collins had a single dissenter, Justice Alito. Uh, uh, Riley, the case a few terms ago, where the court unanimously said that the police can't search a cell phone when they arrest you uh, was was nine zero. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is a beautiful example of the bipartisan uh, agreement among the justices that we must translate the Fourth Amendment so it protects just as much privacy in the age of the car and the cell phone as it did in the age of the general warrants. Um, And the next question concerns an issue that the framers were very concerned about. Um, And it asks, in Federalist Number 10, Madison talks about factions. What is a faction and why was Madison so concerned about them? Thank you so much for asking, Lana. And dear We the People listeners, it is so important to me that you channel with me right now Madison's concern about faction, which was so central to his concerns about the future of the American Republic. Madison said in Federalist 55, we've talked about this on recent podcasts, in all very large assemblies of whatever character compose, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. So Madison and Hamilton are really concerned that in small assemblies that deliberate face-to-face, as in Greece and Athens, then mobilized mobs or factions will make hasty decisions based on passion rather than reason, favoring self-interest rather than the public good. That's why their entire system is designed to slow down deliberations, to to prevent factions from mobilizing quickly so that reason rather than passion can prevail. The Madisonian definition of faction famously is in Federalist 10, and Madison says, by faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interests adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. Isn't that fascinating, we the people friends? First of all, a faction can be a majority or a minority. The definition is that it's a group animated by passion rather than reason or interest adverse to the rights of other citizens rather than serving the permanent and aggregate interest of the community. And that word aggregate is so important because you must understand Madison's notion that majorities should rule, but only when they prevail slowly over time. It has to be a considered, aggregated, permanent public good that the majority is favoring rather than the self-interests or partial passions or enthusiasms that sometimes seized state legislatures and small assemblies. Madison's solution to the problem of factions was two. They had two solutions. One, a representative republic rather than a direct democracy. Madison said Plato was wrong when he said that you couldn't have a republic with more than a thousand citizens because of the system of representation. Once you don't need face-to-face deliberation, then 
having representatives of the people will ensure that mobs can't get together and deliberate face-to-face, and also that representatives can serve as a cooling mechanism, ensuring that the most deliberate voice of the community, filtered through the wisest representatives, as in the Senate, would be the senatorial saucer, as George Washington put it, that famously cooled the passions of the House. So representation is one cure to the problems of faction. The other is the extended republic. The fact that America is so big means that it'll be very hard for factions to discover each other and to organize and to do their mischief. Uh, and uh, Madison says that the, uh, he famously said, extend the sphere of the republic and you will ensure the prevalence of passion rather than reason. Uh, the smaller the society, the fewer will be the distinct parties and interests composing it and so forth. Extend the sphere and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests. You make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. Or if such common motive exists, it will be more difficult for all who feel it to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other. Dear we the people friends, we now face a situation where social media technologies, which we love so much and which allow us to distribute the We the People podcast, also obviate the benefits of the extended republic that Madison uh, hoped for. Now, mobilized mobs on social media can make decisions in real time with Brexit votes and Twitter polls. And it's really easy for passionate minorities or majorities to discover each other and to work their will in real time. Also, social media allows polarization of the kind that Madison feared, allowing us to self-segregate into filter bubbles and echo chambers. To make matters worse, it turns out that what travels on social media is stuff that's animated by passion rather than reason. There have been all these fascinating and disturbing studies suggesting people are more likely to share fake news than real news because fake news appeals to anger and other discordant passions whereas real news may be more likely to appeal to reason. What is to be done about this situation where we are living in a situation where the virtual factions that Madison feared seem prevalent and the remedies that Madison counted on, namely the large size of America and also the cooling voice of representation, are undermined by these technologies of populism and passion. Well, for that answer, you've got to stay tuned to all of the programs we're going to be doing over the next year as part of our great new project, A Madisonian Constitution for All. We've assembled uh, the heads of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society uh, to co-chair a commission that's going to ask how to resurrect Madisonian notions of public reason in our polarized age. We're going to launch uh, in the fall uh, in a great collaboration with The Atlantic Magazine, and you'll just be hearing lots more about the answer to this question. But here, we the people listener, you know, I'm always giving you homework and, and I, I love it when you respond. Here's your homework for the faction question. What do you think the solutions are to the problem of faction in the age of Facebook? If it's really easy for people to mobilize into mobs quickly on Twitter and Facebook and to share stuff based on angry emotions rather than reason, what are the technological, institutional, structural, or other solutions that might resurrect uh, the reason of Madison rather than the passion of social media technologies. Email your thoughts 
to jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and we'll be sure to share them. Jeff, as we stay tuned for more from the Constitution Center's Madisonian Commission, are there any books on Madison that you might recommend to listeners who are interested in learning more this summer? Well, Lon, I'm so glad you asked because I'm sitting here with one, two, three, four, five books on Madison that I've literally been lugging around in my suitcase from Philadelphia to D.C. over the past couple months, really, as as you and I and, and the Constitution Center team think about how to channel Madisonian reason uh, into uh, the age of social media. So I'm so excited to recommend them to our We the People listeners. So dear friends, start with Madison's writings. The Library of Congress has this great volume of Madison's writings, and it's all in one set, includes everything from his notes uh, at the convention and speeches at the convention to the major Federalist papers to, and this is really important, and you've got to put this on the table, his post-ratification essays in the National Gazette about public opinion, government charters, and parties. The National Gazette was a partisan newspaper of the newly formed Republican and Democratic Party, but Madison's mature thoughts in that in those essays are hugely important for understanding his thought. Uh, they include his uh, Virginia resolutions against the Alien and Sedition Acts, which are among the most important uh, speak, uh, expressions of free speech uh, of their time, as well as his report on the Alien and Sedition Acts and his letters to Jefferson. And then in retirement, there's this incredibly moving essay from 1834, soon before his death, Advice to My Country. So, And, and you know what, friends? Read or reread the Federalist Papers. Um, got to do it. It's, they're, they're, they're the most important statement of the American idea ever expressed. And they reward frequent uh, reading. And the Library of America selections are a perfect place to begin. So start with that. Then what I want you to read is an absolutely brilliant book that uh, has transformed my understanding of the American Republic. And it's called Madison's Metronome, The Constitution, Majority Rule, and the Tempo of American Politics. And it's by Greg Wiener. Uh, Wiener's basic idea is that uh, Madison wants majorities to rule, but only slowly over time. Wiener calls this temporal republicanism. And it's Wiener who introduced to debate the importance of slowing down debate in Madison's thought so that majorities could rule by thoughtful and deliberative reason rather than hasty and impetuous passion. The book is an extended argument for the importance of time. It's the justification for all of the speed bumps and cooling mechanisms uh, that Madison and the framers put in place to slow down deliberation. And of course, it's a cautionary tale to how Madisonian reason can prevail in an age when those speed bumps are eliminated. Um, relatedly, I'm just as enthusiastic uh, to, to recommend to you the work of uh, Colleen Sheehan. Uh, her book, James Madison and the Spirit of Republican Self-Government, also channels uh, the notion of uh, reason um, in Madison's thought, but Sheehan really has delved into Madison's thoughts about public opinion. And it's Sheehan who focused on the National Gazette essays, the party press essays from 1791, 
where Madison is really expressing his mature thoughts about how to influence public opinion so that it's guided by reason. And, and Madison understands the whole system collapses unless uh, public opinion and majorities can be persuaded to rule reasonably. And Sheehan notes that Madison concluded in the party press essay uh, that although you want the benefits in an extended republic so factions can't mobilize quickly, you also want uh, a class that Madison called the literati, that is enlightened journalists and divines and uh, thoughtful men of, and they were men then, of letters to be able to persuade the citizens through the newly empowered mass media. And this is Madison in the um, party press essay uh, he says that whatever eases communication among citizens, including uh, good transportation roads, improvements in interior navigation, and the free circulation of newspapers, as well as representatives traveling to and from the capital city, all of which could contract the territorial size uh, enough to allow reason to prevail without uh, allowing people to be distracted by passion. So Sheehan is just superb in uh, Madison and public opinion, and she talks about how the rise of mass media made communication over this large territory possible for the first time in history, making possible what Madison so memorably called a commerce of ideas throughout the extensive territory. To my knowledge, as Sheehan, this original momentous insight belongs to James Madison, who envisioned newspapers serving as vehicles or circulating the idea of the literati to the people of the extensive American Republic. Um, it's, it's just so wonderful. I'm going to read one last uh, quotation from the Sheehan book. This is from page 104. Madison writing in the early 1790s that uh, the literati uh, include the philosophic and patriotic citizens who cultivate their reason apart from the scenes which distract its operation and expose it to the influence of passions. Madison continues, it's the duty of intelligent and faithful citizens to discuss and promulgate uh, ideas freely in order to control government by the censorship of public opinion according to the rules of the Constitution. The literati, Madison declared, are the cultivators of the human mind, the manufacturers of useful knowledge, the agents of the commerce of ideas, the censors of public manners, the teachers of the arts of life, and the means of happiness. They are... Indeed, and all of us are so enlightened whenever we read great books like that of Colleen Sheehan, herself a pillar of the literati who can teach us about the reason at the core of the framer's thoughts. So please read Colleen Sheehan, uh, maybe starting with James Madison and the Spirit of Republican Self-Government. Uh, two other really great books, uh, which I'll uh, mention um, and then end. Uh, there's a book by William... Connolly called James Madison Rules America, The Constitutional Origins of Congressional Partisanship, obviously a topic of huge significance right now. And Connolly contrasts two visions of the Constitution, that of Madison and that of James Wilson, and oh, sorry, that of uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and um, George Will in a recent speech at the Constitution Center said all of constitutional history can be seen as a battle between two Princetonians, Madison and Wilson. And channels Connolly in expressing distress at the Wilsonian notion of either parliamentary government or presidential government. Wilson embraced both visions, neither of which was Madisonian because both 
questioned the separation of powers and natural rights. The first president to basically say the president in Congress, like the king in parliament, should be able to do whatever he likes. And Connolly, in his really wonderful history, notes that this was the vision embraced by Newt Gingrich in 1994 when Gingrich insisted that the speaker in Congress was a kind of uh, British parliamentary speaker who should be able to rule by partisan majorities uh, heedless of the will of the minority. And it's the Gingrich-Wilson vision that speakers of both parties have embraced when they've passed the major achievements of two recent presidential administrations, the Affordable Care Act under President Obama and the Tax Act under President Trump. With no votes from the opposite party, James Madison would not be pleased. Uh, the final book I'll plug is James Madison and Constitutional Imperfection, and that's by Jeremy Bailey. And it's a great uh, book about representation and deliberation in Madisonian constitutionalism and a wonderful political scientist's survey of the schools of political science, including uh, pluralism championed by Robert Dahl um, and tracing that tradition back to the Madisonian tradition, um, as well as the central influence of the party system. The framers famously didn't anticipate parties. It was their greatest blind spot. But parties came to assume a substitute for the cooling mechanisms that Madison had counted on um, by essentially aggregating citizens from different regions and different ideologies. So for a long time, the Democrats included white conservative Southerners and um, uh, uh, Midwestern uh, uh, populists uh, who were more liberal and the Republicans included uh, African-Americans and uh, manufacturing elites. Um, and uh, Bailey traces some of that evolution. Um, I'll, I'll just end not with a book but with a great article I just read about the uh, transformation of the parties uh, and the rise of partisanship. It's by Richard Pildes, one of our interactive constitution scholars, who says the real reason that the parties stopped playing their role as aggregators of diverse geographic and ideological interests was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was the realignment that followed the passage of the Voting Rights Act where conservative white Southerners fled the Democratic Party, and went to the Republicans, the South becomes a two-party state and then flips Republican, um, ended up with two parties that are geographically and ideologically segregated. Um, and Pildes runs through other explanations for polarization as well, but says that that realignment was the most important cause. Completely fascinating. So much to read about Madison. Isn't it exciting, dear the people listeners, to be part of the community of learners who can be inspired by the commerce of ideas. There's so much more to learn each day about these topics that we all love so much. And it's so exciting every time you pick up a wonderful book like the ones that I've recommended to you to have your mind expanded and your reason cultivated. So that's great beach reading. Everyone else will be out there uh, in front of the pool um, and you'll be able to have your great Library of America <laughs> copy of the Writings of Madison, and I know we the people listeners, you will be proudly tanning yourself and reading the National Gazette essays at the same time. So thanks so much for asking Lana, and we the people listeners, enjoy the great books. Well, thank you, Jeff, for those great recommendations, and I know I can't wait to read more about Madison this summer. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Thank you so much. We'll read together. Yes. And thank you also for answering these tough but important questions from our We the People listeners. Thank you for asking and helping me answer them. It's been great, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.
Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Ugana Etze, Madison Poulter, and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by me, Lana Ulrich, and Ugana Etze. This summer, come to the Constitution Center in Philadelphia to visit Hamilton, the constitutional clashes that shaped a nation. Our thrilling new exhibit, which highlights the competing ideas of Alexander Hamilton and his legendary rivals like Jefferson, Adams, Madison, and Burr. The exhibit includes a number of amazing artifacts, like a copy of the infamous Reynolds pamphlet, Hamilton's portable writing desk from the late 1700s, and replicas of the original Hamilton-Burr dueling pistols. To plan your visit, check out constitutioncenter.org forward slash visit for more information. Finally, the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please, be, please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.